The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Elon Musk goes long on Twitter hype, and Emmanuel Macron faces a dicey election against his far-right opponent. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your co-host, Amy Donlan, a columnist at Breaking Views, coming to you from the suburbs of London. Elon Musk added $10 billion to the value of Twitter after he disclosed a 9% stake in the social media platform. He also revealed that he had joined the board. However, just what exactly the Tesla chief executive can do to boost Twitter's business by such a sum is unclear. In Europe, French voters are gearing up to select their next French president, and conditions are tricky for incumbent Emmanuel Macron. The war in Ukraine has sparked a surge in energy prices, and Macron is asking French people to work harder for longer. Meanwhile, his rival Marine Le Pen is gaining ground in polls, having wooed voters with economic policies aimed at improving the fortunes of the man on the street. First, my colleague Peter Tal Larson chats to Jonathan Guilford in New York about Elon Musk's big punt on Twitter and why the $10 billion share boost may be as much as investors can hope for. Then I speak to columnist Pierre Brianson in London about the challenges facing Emmanuel Macron in the upcoming French election. Welcome back. I'm Peter Tharlarsson, coming to you this week from New York, and with me is Jonathan Guilford. Hi, Jonathan. Pleasure to be here, Peter. And you have been writing this week about uh, uh, this crazy story of Elon Musk announcing on Monday morning that he had bought 9% of Twitter and all the sort of all the fun that has flowed from that particular moment. I mean, to start, the first thing, he's a big Twitter user, obviously, Elon Musk, but do we have any idea like why he wants to be an investor? It's, as with everything to do with Elon Musk, perhaps somewhat unclear. This is the man who, on a call with analysts not too recently, said that he was going to pivot to providing humanoid robots as his nearest term new product. So I think it's worth taking all of this with a grain of salt. But what Elon seems to have indicated through his tweets in recent weeks is that he has certain issues with is free speech being appropriately policed on the platform. And beyond that, everything is kind of entangled with his long running grievance against the government for trying to prevent him from saying material things about Tesla on Twitter. So gives him a little bit of a way to thumb his nose at the government and also perhaps a little bit of a thumb on the scale with Twitter in terms of its moderation policies. Yeah. So, I mean, but he obviously, because when he came out initially, and I think you had a piece where saying, saying like this SEC filing is like a sort of super tweet, right? Because it added, immediately added whatever it was, 26% to the value of Twitter. But initially the filing was like, oh, he's just going to be an investor. And then right. within 24 hours, he was on the board. Yeah. And I think that took a lot of people by surprise. At first, there was some thought, oh, maybe he's just doing this to make some kind of elliptical point. And I think when it comes to Twitter, really, the only way to complain about Twitter isn't on the platform. It's either running a campaign like Elliot did, or it's going off and making your own filings with the SEC. If you're rich, you know, there's no better form of engagement than putting something up on Edgar and seeing a stock fly up 20 percent much more satisfying than RTs. So, I mean, in, you have to have the, whatever it is, four or five billion dollars to make that happen in the first place. I mean, that's walking around money these days for Elon. So he got to have his fun, got to do that. There was a thought maybe it ends there. But as time has gone on, we've seen, no, actually, there was more involvement here. Elon was reportedly calling up the board, having conversations, kind of thinking about what he could do with Twitter. 
So there's, I guess, an open question as to the extent to which any of this was choreographed as opposed to purely chaotic. But no matter what happened, I think there is some reasonable confusion over why Elon was filed on a passive filing, which would usually indicate he didn't have anything to do with the company's operations. Yeah, and now he's going to be a board director. I mean, I guess you've got to say if you're a, if you're a Twitter investor, like big picture, this is great, right? On the one hand, you've got I think he's like the biggest, or at least one of the biggest Twitter has one of the biggest Twitter follower bases of anyone out there, especially now that Donald Trump has been kicked off. Mm. So he's sort of he's clearly like committing himself to to that platform a bit more. He brings a lot of attention and sort of followers and noise and stuff, which presumably has got to be good for Twitter in some way, like in terms of gathering people's attention. And I, and he's obviously also pushed the price up. I mean, I guess the question is really what. If we think about it financially, which I'm not sure that anyone else is, but we need to do that, is what would need to happen to Twitter in order to justify the kind of the kind of reaction that we've seen? Well, from the first place, anything that Elon Musk tweets about immediately rises in value. That's just the way things work now. So <laughs> even if the fundamentals don't change, Elon is already bringing some kind of uh, some kind of value there. In a broader sense, you could almost say it's aligning incentives, right? Twitter is notoriously terrible at returning value to shareholders. It is terrible at growing its user base in a way comparable to other platforms. What it is great at is creating real world outcomes. So Donald Trump became president. He used Twitter as his soapbox. Whenever Elon Musk or some viral flavor of the day tweets, it moves a stock. That's Twitter's real purpose, not benefiting shareholders, but benefiting various viral absurdities. So now you have Elon on the board. You could say it's aligning incentives with fulfilling its actual mission. In terms of whether it's going to change the financial underpinnings, that's more difficult to say. Well, because he's added, I think he added on day one something in the order of of ten billion dollars. Is that right, right to the to the value of Twitter? So if you look at sort of, I mean, it's basically, it's roughly, you know, if not quite thirty percent or something. So if you look at Twitter's user base, I think I think our colleague Rog Siren ran these numbers and basically said, well, you'd have to. You have to increase the user base by a third to kind of, in order for the, for this to add up. If you're valuing Twitter on a sort of per active user type basis, mm. is he going to do that? Hard to say, right? Uh, it depends on how many people there are out there who look up to Elon as an aspirational model. Can I tweet my way into becoming my own techno king? <laughs> uh, it's difficult to say. Obviously, numbers at this scale, it's hard to see anything moving around like that. I. Part of this might depend on whether you think that the vision of someone like Jack Dorsey, who used to lead Twitter, was the uh, target of activist investor ire and eventually left, whether you think he did have some kind of longer term vision that made sense for the company that really departs from what Twitter has done in the past. Because there was a sense that he didn't really get to put into practice everything he wanted to. Elon and Jack Dorsey are quite close. They've made various tweets that seem to line up and head in the same direction. So if you do think there was some goal to mine there in this, whatever this utopian vision is of what Twitter can be, maybe there's real value. Maybe there is real value. I think, well, I guess um, at least you can say that Twitter is a, is a company, generates some revenue. As you say, it hasn't been very good at generating value for <laughs> investors. But presumably there's more there than there is with Dogecoin, which was the other sort of one of the previous uh, Elon Musk sort of um, 
you know, kind of uh, investment sort of um, uh, razzmatazz things. Anyway, Jonathan, thanks very much for this. I'm sure you will be watching this with, with interest and alarm and fascination like the rest <laughs> of us. And uh, no doubt we will talk about this again. Absolutely. Looking forward to it, Peter. On April 10th, French voters will go to the polls for the first round of the presidential elections. It's not an ideal backdrop for incumbent Emmanuel Macron. Energy prices are soaring and the French president is asking his people to work for longer as he attempts to raise the retirement age. So Pierre, you wrote a view on this that went down very well with our readers. What's your big take on this election and how should investors be thinking about it? Well, what happens in the last days, in the last couple of weeks actually, uh, before the election is that the polls are, are tightening. Up to now, there was an assumption that Macron would win the first round really brilliantly with around 30% of the vote. And other candidates were kind of far behind him. And it was even unclear to see who would come second because the president is actually, as you know, elected in a runoff that will take place two weeks after the first round. Yeah. What happens now is that Marine Le Pen, the far-right candidate that already was Macron's main opponent five years ago, is climbing in the polls, partly because she has run a very good campaign and uh, she has, some people would find it a bit strange, she has become much more credible on economic matters and especially uh, how to deal with uh, lower income people after the crisis that we've another two years of uh, economic crisis. So Le Pen becoming more credible in spite of a, of a competitor from the far right, Eric Zemmour, the, uh, the essayist, and Macron who thought he might be able to campaign on his record. The French people think he's, he's performed pretty well during the pandemic. They, uh, they are they are happy the way he behave, has behaved since uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Macron thought he could pretty much run without campaigning, and he has been proven wrong. They are now raising alarm. They are raising all sorts of alarm to the effect that Le Pen might win in the second round. But uh, maybe we, we're going to see in the next two days how, how this plays out. What seems to be pretty certain for now is that Macron and Le Pen will come ahead and will face each other in the runoff in two weeks' time. So Pierre, is there a bit of a sense of a, you know, a Brexit or a Trump kind of situation where maybe actually people could be kind of caught a bit off guard, but with the result that 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 could be coming about? Or is it is is it sort of is it more likely that Macron will win, but just maybe not as much as as expected and and maybe his party won't do so well, so it'll be harder for him to to get things done? When you compare the current polls with the actual results of the first round five years ago, Two things come to mind really are, are, are striking. The first is that the far right, all the candidates from the far right have progressed from about 27% of the vote to 34%. The far right vote in France today is about one third of the population. And this is the main thing, even, even if, uh, again, there, there, are, there are three candidates from the far right, even if Le Pen is far ahead of the, of the other two. The second big trend is that the conservative right has lost tremendous ground, goes from 20% to less than 10% of the vote today. So Macron has um, destroyed pretty much the, 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 the mainstream conservative party, just as he did destroy the mainstream social democratic party, the socialist party, five years ago. Macron himself progresses 
Macron goes from about 24% to 27% of the vote. Again, we're talking first round here. Yeah. What will happen is that in the second round, he will win by a much tighter margin, and he would win, sorry, by a much tighter margin. Even the tighter margin would look like an upset for him, because mm -hmm. it would be, it would, what people will remember is Le Pen coming with a very big score and coming very near becoming president. It is possible we might ha have such an upset. I personally don't believe it. I don't think the numbers are there. I think the centrist voters who are reluctant to vote for Macron, who's never been a very popular president, but the you know center-left voters, center-right voters will suddenly realize that Le Pen is indeed a danger because she is considered a danger by a lot of uh, by most of the of, of French voters. So I think there will be that kind of a realization that the danger is here. So no, we're not we're not going to abstain. We're going to go to the to the polling booth. But it is yeah, as things are now and considering the trend, uh, it you cannot rule it out. Is the way I would put it. Yeah. And so if you're if you're Macron and let's say you do, let's say he does, you know, he does win. But as you say, it's a tighter result than expected. Does that then suggest that some of those economic policies that Le Pen is is sort of getting some, you know, gaining some traction with? Would he then have to take on or at least entertain some of those policies by bringing them into his own party? And and, and what are those economic policies? So if you're if you're a, an investor in France at the moment or an investment banker, are you busy? trolling through the uh, the manifesto of Le Pen to see to see what's on the cards. Le Pen has been very good again in focusing the campaign on issues such as purchasing powers, uh, how, how to raise wages, the low income people who have been who have suffered throughout the crisis at directing uh, her anger or her, her towards the rich who benefit and, and, and Macron is, you know, the well-educated urban elite uh, who are from Macron has only realized very late in the campaign that these were themes that people actually care about. They don't care about having a president who who does nice, who does, you know, what needs to be done against Putin, who is a, a, a star on the international arena. Uh, they, they care about what happens to their economic well-being. And Le Pen has been very good at that. Macron thought that uh, an, a kind of a imperial approach to campaigning would would see him through. And he just realized he has realized very lately, late in the campaign, that 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 he should actually talk about things that do matter to French voters. So he has a good. I mean, the the irony of it is that he has a rather good economic record. I mean, you know, the French economy has the reforms he have he has implemented. Up pretty successful. The French economy has performed better than all other major European economies throughout the pandemic, especially last year. So he could that he could have, you know, campaign on that record. His promises, as you said, he decided to in some ways, in some areas, to take a tough love, tough love approach to campaigning, promising to raise the retirement age asking or asking or warning the French that they would have to work more and harder in the years to come. These are not usually themes that candidates to the presidency campaign on, uh, not to mention the raising the, the defense budget that uh, another of his uh, uh, campaign pledges. So he may pay a little bit of that. Again, it doesn't show in the numbers yet. Is it progressing compared to what he did in, uh, in 2017? The, the problem is not so much 
how many people are ready to vote for him is how many people are ready to vote for Le Pen this time around. Yes, absolutely. So if you are Emmanuel Macron, you're telling the French people they need to work harder. He certainly, it looks like, needs to work harder to get his message across. So yes, Pierre, thank you very much for that. We'll, thank you. We'll follow the story closely. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Taslick in London. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on a cast, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.